Holy Father, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I trust that you were challenged and encouraged by reading through the entire 21 chapters of John this week. Um, You know, what a gift we've been given to hold God's holy word in our fingertips. The Holy Bible is really a unique writing among all other writings, isn't it? In its pages, we can discover the truth about our origins, the truth about our family history as part of mankind, and the truth about our eternal destiny, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Today's homework lesson is an overview of the whole book of John, and I know we could all go around this room and share something poignant and particular that we gleaned from those pages as we read this week. We'll be touching on lots of points from John this morning, but let me start off by reading the prologue of this glorious book. We're going to study the prologue next week in an in-depth way, but this morning I just want to anchor us in these beautiful words written at the beginning of the Gospel of John. So hear God's word to you. In the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is referring to John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. We could say amen and leave this room right now and be blessed. Um, But we are going to discuss this further. So let's consider the opening lines of John um, as we move forward into our outline for the morning. 
Our first division, I'm calling it uh, compelling authority. You know, it's by design that God, excuse me, that John begins with the words, in the beginning. They're the same three words you probably noticed that are the start of Genesis. Now, Jewish readers of John's day would have recognized the parallel to Genesis right away. But they didn't call the first book of the Holy Scriptures Genesis, like we do. The first three words of that book were the title to them, in the beginning. So when the Apostle John um, recorded much of his gospel based on events in and around Jerusalem, he used those three words assuming that the readers would have a good working knowledge of the Old Testament the teaching, and the prophecies. He was directing them back to the beginning. So in the beginning, the Word, the Logos, who is Jesus, was with God and the Holy Spirit in the perfection of the Trinity. They didn't create the universe of mankind because they were lonely, but because they desired to invite you and me to share in their glory, to enjoy relationship the way that the Trinity exists in relationship. By pointing to Jesus as part of the creative team of the Trinity existing outside of space and time, the uncreated Son of God, John is revealing Jesus' compelling authority. Jesus Christ established the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the seas, plants, animals, and mankind who is made in his image. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, givers of life, created everything from nothing, from nothing. In the first five verses of the book of John, all those little G-gods that were the center of pagan worship in John's day are laid to waste in a powerless heap. The Trinity has total authority because they created it all. Now, some of you may have been at Cedar Springs this summer for our summer study that focused on the beautiful I am statements that are woven throughout the book of John. Um, as Steph Schneider led us this summer, we explored how each of the I am proclamations of Jesus Christ reveal the nature and the character of God through his son the incarnate Son of God, and he was the perfect representation of the Father. In fact, Jesus told his followers, if you had known me, you would have known the Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. That's from John 14, 7. You may have noticed that this week when you read. We could learn more about the nature of our Heavenly Father from each of those I Am statements. Again, John's Jewish contemporaries would have recognized that by Jesus using the term I am, Jesus was proclaiming with compelling authority his divine sonship. The incarnation of Jesus Christ changed the trajectory of history forever. I am walked among those he came to save, and John the Apostle was the eyewitness to it. So here's a reminder about those I am statements and what Jesus proclaims. In John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. 
In his authority, Jesus provides our daily sustenance to feed our hungry hearts. It's beyond our physical needs. In John 8, he said, I am the light of the world. In his authority, Christ shines a light on all the broken places in our lives. You know, light brings healing and purification. Light brings wholeness. Also in John 8, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. The uncreated author of all of creation is the one who Abraham looked to for his own righteousness. I am the door. Jesus is the door and the gate for his own sheep. He's our pathway. He's our protection. As believers, we are the sheep of his pasture, and he has the authority not only to hem us in, but to preserve us in our faith. I am the good shepherd. His good authority leads us in good and merciful pathways. We saw that in John 10. In John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he died, yet shall he live. He has authority over all death. And he brings his own, when they belong to him, into eternal life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's in John 14. There is no plan B for salvation. Because he died in our place, he has the authority to raise us to new life. I am the true vine, Jesus says in John 15. Abiding in Jesus Christ means we are connected to the life source for obedience and living deeply. Disconnected from him, going our own way, means we get nothing accomplished for eternity. Jesus didn't possess, well, if Jesus, if Jesus didn't possess the authority given to him by the Father, all these I am statements I just read would really be musings of a lunatic. But instead, they are proclamations of the sovereign Savior, revealing the character and nature of God. We see his authority in the visible creation. We read about his authority in the prophecies, the promises, the commandments. In scripture, we submit to his authority as the Holy Spirit guides and directs our steps when we come to believe and receive the gift of life, the gift of faith through grace. We'll see many facets of Jesus Christ's authority as we study the gospel according to John this year. So do you bristle at the idea of the Lord having authority over you? Does that word trigger some of you? Does it make you uncomfortable? Maybe it's because in our pride, we really don't think we need that much guidance in this life. You know, before I came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior at the age of 23, that's really how I lived. I took great pride in my autonomy. I was my own woman. I trusted my own mind the most. 
and I was a walking dead woman. I was miserable in my own self-righteousness, which I came to realize was no righteousness at all. But Christ's authority over our lives is marked by love and freedom. There's real freedom in this authority. And that leads us to our principle, our application for our first division. As the sovereign, uncreated creator of all that is seen and unseen, Christ has unique authority over all the universe, including all people who are made in his image. Every one of you that I'm looking at are made in his image. Are there areas in our lives where you have given authority over to some habit or feeling or person other than Jesus Christ? Consider this week, maybe, if that speaks to you, how dual allegiance really hinders our spiritual growth. It's Christ above all. He is our authority. Now let's move on to our second division and talk about divine power. You know, there are many human beings on earth today that wield authority because of their because of the social structure we live in or maybe the political office they hold. But just because someone has authority doesn't mean they have the power to go with it. Or if they do wield power, they don't use it well with justice, mercy, and love. Jesus Christ taught with great authority, as recorded by the Apostle John, but with his authority, he demonstrated power, unlike any prophet or any rabbi that came before him. Did you notice when you read through the whole book of John this week that John doesn't record Jesus' words in parables, in that type of form, but in more direct, kind of illustrative stories. That's much the same way a rabbi would have taught his followers in John's day, often with references to the Old Testament. And you guys who have been in this class before have all that foundation from the Old Testament, so that's exciting. But Jesus Christ, he was no ordinary rabbi, was he? He was the master of the object lesson in teaching God's truth. And you can't find more powerful object lessons than miracles, which John calls signs, and they're found throughout this gospel account. John tells us in chapter 21 that Jesus Christ performed so many signs in the presence of his disciples that if every one of them had been recorded, the world couldn't contain the book's it would have taken to write them all down. We tend to think he was very selective in his miracles. Apparently not. Um, John selectively chose the miracles we find in these pages to illustrate particular truths about the power of Jesus Christ. What, what are signs and miracles to us today, really? Are they answers to prayers? Yes, sometimes they can be. But... Miracles also symbolize something much deeper. I think that many signs and miracles we think of today are really, when you boil it down, they're acts of restoration by the preeminent Son of God. He came to recreate, to restore that which was lost in the fall in the Garden of Eden. 
Just as the I am statements proclaim Christ's authority, we'll see specific miracles of restoration and demonstrations of Christ's lordship as we study the Gospel of John. And these all announce his omniscience and his power. He came to redeem that which was lost. So I'm just going to touch on three miracles and signs that are mentioned in the book of John this morning. You know, how beautiful it is that the very first miracle John describes takes place at a wedding. Don't you just love a good wedding? I do. Um, the Apostle Matthew wrote about Jesus. I love this description that Matthew used um, in chapter 11. He said, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. That's what made the Pharisees so crazy. They hated that Jesus was so social and among the people. But the wedding celebration in Canaan, at that place, Jesus demonstrates that he is the true master of the feast when he turns ordinary water into the finest, most costly wine. And it was the good stuff. It was not watered down. It was such a stunning display of power that John 2.11 tells us this miracle manifested his glory. The wine manifested his glory. And the disciples who were at the wedding with Jesus believed in him right then and there. In power, Jesus Christ, the true master of the feast, will one day come again for all of us who believe in his name. He's going to preside over another celebration feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb, when Christ will receive his bride. He came in power to invite us to celebrate in his kingdom. His earthly ministry began with a wedding feast, and it will be consummated with another one for all of eternity. Another sign in chapter 6 that we read about was Jesus walking on the water. John sets the scene. Evening had come. Jesus had just fed those 5,000 plus wives and children. And he refused to be forced by the crowds to become their king. They want him not because they believe in his name, but because they've been miraculously fed. Unlimited fish and bread. It was like an all-you-could-eat buffet. They want him to be king. Jesus left that scene by himself, and the disciples set out on their own across the Sea of Galilee. John points out it was dark, which kind of sets a mood of discouragement. The disciples are in a boat heading across to Capernaum without Christ in their presence. Though they are in the safety of the boat, all their efforts to row are getting them nowhere. Did you notice that? It's really a symbolic picture of the Christian life when we try to rely on our own efforts to make progress in the kingdom. But when Christ enters in, when he joins them in the boat, they're literally teleported to the land on the other side. They reach their intended destination. Christ came in power to be in our presence, to abide with us, to empower us, both his church universal and the individual believers that he is called to effectively carry out his mission. 
The last beautiful reminder I want to touch on of Christ's power is in the miracle of raising his friend Lazarus from the dead, which we read about in John chapter 11. At the fall in the Garden of Eden, sickness and death entered mankind's existence. When Jesus receives word that Lazarus is ill, he deliberately stays two more days where he's at. But it's not for a lack of love or concern for Lazarus. God's timing is always perfect. But his timing is not our timing. And his delays do not contradict his love for us. Jesus is deeply troubled in his spirit when he reaches the graveside of Lazarus because he understands the evil origins of death. It's all around us, but let me tell you, death is unnatural. It's not what we were created for. John Calvin called death violent tyranny. The misery of all humanity due to the devastation that death brings causes the Lord of all creation to weep. John the Apostle was an eyewitness to that weeping, and he records it for us. But as the uncreated creator, Jesus has the power over death. He is the omnipotent grave robber who came to grant eternal life to those who believe in his name. Jesus came with power to slay the enemy. And more than having power to defeat death alone, he has the power to grant life that we might live deeply in his presence in freedom. Well, those are just three of the vignettes of Christ's divine power that we're, we're going to be studying those further this year. So what's our principle and application for the second division we've just talked about? As the preeminent son of God, Jesus Christ demonstrates his power over the effects of the fall on behalf of his image bearers, on behalf of you and me. Jesus Christ came to make all things new, and only he has the power to do it. So here's a question we can all ask ourselves. Is there an area in my life where I'm longing for transformation? Have I brought that struggle into his life? Or am I trying to cope on my own? Remember, his timing is perfect. We are to pray without ceasing as we wait for him in transformation. Sometimes his glory is experienced the most in this season of waiting. So don't give up. Pray. I've called our last division Redeeming Love. It's my prayer that as you read, I prayed for you this week, as you read these pages of John, that you were struck by how well Jesus loved people, how respectful he was in his relationships, how he demonstrated his authority and his power, but with such humility, wrapped in love. Think about his thoughtful conversation with the Pharisee Nicodemus, Jesus laid his mission bare to this questioning Pharisee. 
If you have a, a Bible with Jesus' words in red letters, these are red letters. This is what Jesus is saying about himself. He says, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's from John 3, 16 through 18. As the redeemed, we have been bought back. We've been purchased from death at a great cost, and we're caused we're called to believe in the name of our Redeemer. And the amazing thing is, he gives us the faith to believe as a gift. It's a gift of grace. We, we often like to think that by receiving Jesus Christ, you know, by getting to that place, it was all our idea. We came to that on our own. And how lucky he is to have us, you know. Here I am, God. But Actually, we never would have come to him if he had not loved us first, if he had not pursued us first. That's how much our hearts need transformation. The Apostle John knew full well the power of transformation. A blustery fisherman, once known, along with his brother James, as the son of thunder, it implies a noisy person, doesn't it? Maybe arrogant. Maybe it was fed by his Jewish mother, who we read in Matthew um, 20, 28, if you've read that before. She comes to Jesus to ask him to give her two sons, James and John, special positions in his cabinet when he comes into his kingdom. Let's face it, John is a real mama's boy. But John is transformed by Jesus Christ. To become known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know, I don't think John refers to himself that way with any hubris. But I think he refers to himself that way out of awe. Out of awe that the God of the universe would love even him. Even me. Even you. Christ has changed John's identity. Christ had become John's identity. Now, I know what most of you were watching this past Saturday afternoon, but I was watching the U.S. Open women's tennis final. Um, Coco Goff, a 19-year-old player, defeated the woman that, before that moment, was ranked number one in the world, Arina Sabalenka, to claim her first Grand Slam singles title. You know, up to the final, Sabalenka had only lost one set in the entire tournament at the U.S. Open. Coco's path to the final was much more shaky, much more rocky. In women's tennis, if you don't know anything about it, you have to win the best two out of three sets to win a match. Well, in earlier rounds leading up to the final, Coco had lost her first set, but then she'd get a rhythm and win the last two sets. Well, that happened twice to her leading up to the Saturday final. It was so nerve-wracking. And in the finals, 
Again, Coco lost the first set. And if you're a fan, you're thinking, this does not look good. But within the past year, something happened. Coco changed something about the way she approached tennis. It wasn't a new conditioning routine or a different training method. She said her new approach is this. She's determined not to let tennis become her identity. That's a pretty big statement from a woman who was just handed a $3 million check for winning the US Open. But she explained it in an interview that in the past, when she'd lose the first set, she'd get really down on herself. She'd start hearing the Twitter X, whatever those comments are. She'd tell herself she didn't deserve to be, to be there. She'd hear the voice of her critics. Um, she didn't think she belonged where she was. But then she realized her identity had to stay rooted in God, win or lose. What people said about her didn't matter. She turned off her social media. And it changed her game. It changed the way she felt about it, and it literally set her free. That little 19-year-old is playing her best tennis now, and you can see the joy and peace in her when she kneels on the court before she starts a match to pray. That's what knowing who we belong to does to us, to our sense of identity. God has called very few of us to be elite athletes or public figures, but he has called us to be his daughters. If we have believed in him by faith, he grants us life in his name, life that is full and free and deep. The preeminent son of God thought you were worth laying aside his crown for. He came to appear for a time in the flesh for your sake and mine. Philippians 2 explains that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He left his majesty behind, being born in likeness of men. He laid aside his equality with God for our sake so that he could live life as a perfect human being. He came to invite you and me to the feast he has prepared for us, and these are the days of our preparation as we actively watch, as we actively wait, and serve. Know this for certain, he is coming back for you. So here's our final principle and application. As the Lamb of God, Christ willingly laid down his life as a loving ransom for many. Through his perfect atoning sacrifice, Christ Jesus paid it all to set you and me free. From the, free, free from the captivity of sin, from the bonds of disobedience. Are you looking to your own works to save you? Be honest. Does the thought that you need saving at all offend you because you don't think you're that bad? I know the darkness of my heart. I know I needed a savior. Until we understand the depths of grace that were shown to us, grace that we didn't earn and that we don't deserve, 
we will never be able to extend grace to other people. Jesus Christ's love, it sets his stamp of ownership on us. Our identity is in him when we believe. And that's the main lesson I want to leave with you. Belief that we are saved by sheer grace should humble us to our core, but also inspire us to live in the freedom of obedience to the preeminent Son. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. The incarnation of Jesus Christ changed the trajectory of history forever. His kingdom has come. It's come. Let me close our time with prayer. Dearest Heavenly Father, we are in awe of your authority, your power, your love. This morning's lesson reminds us that the gospel message is more beautiful than we can fully comprehend. Allow the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, and open our mouths to praise and speak your grace. It's grace upon grace that we've been given. How amazed we are that you would prepare a hope and a future for us out of your great love. You sent your preeminent son to sacrifice himself to take away our sins, to bring us into unending life and joy in your presence. Give us the courage to put away the things that this temporal world tells us would define us. Remind us that Jesus Christ came in flesh to redeem his own image bearers, to restore what had been broken. Give us joy and obedience. Give us patience and purpose as we wait for your return, knowing that it's often in times of waiting, it's in times of suffering, that you are most glorified by your people. Revive us again. Deepen our belief, Father. It's in the gracious and glorious name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.